0: Greetings and salutations, one and all out there in Cyberland. Welcome to today's episode of Risk and Reels. I am your host, Jeffrey Wheatman, and I am very excited to have a longtime friend and colleague, Tom Garuba, joining us. Uh, We are going to talk about everything third-party risk management today. Uh, Tom has a long and storied history. If you're in third-party risk management, you absolutely know Tom's name. Uh, Right now, he is the practice lead at Echelon Risk and Cyber, where he does a lot of consulting in third-party risk management. Welcome, Tom. I'm so glad we
1: were able to get this set up. Jeffrey, thank you so much for the opportunity to be on your podcast. So much looking forward to this. Great to catch up as always, so... Wonderful to be here. Thank you. All right. Excellent. So
0: uh, let's see. As we always do, we start off with a movie question. I think, uh, okay, I got one for you. What is the first movie you ever saw live in a theater? And for those of you young people out there, theaters are places we used to go to watch movies when we didn't have streaming services. So what's the first movie? And share how it made you feel to see that first movie live in a theater with other people.
1: Okay. I, I don't want to cheat here, but it's one of three. I can't actually say which one it is. I think, I think it really was Jaws in the theater. So okay. yeah, I'm dating myself here. I think it was Jaws and we were leaving two weeks later to go to the Florida coast. Aye. And like most people, I didn't want to go. I didn't want to leave the pole. <laughs> yeah. So, so go, it did so- leave quite an
0: impact. How how old were you when you saw that first movie?
1: Uh, I don't know, what year did it come out? Oh, I must have been about seven or eight.
0: <laughs> See, that is so funny because I was talking to one of my kids about this. Back then, there was no PG thirteen, right? Right. It basically went from PG family movie to bad language and naked people in R rated movies. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> so I saw
1: I saw crazy movies like that. I saw uh, that um, well.
0: So what, how did Jaws make you feel? I mean, you mentioned you were heading off to Florida. So, so clearly that could have been a little traumatic.
1: It was, but you know what, you know, being a, you know, being in the music and all that stuff too, you know, it's, it's the whole package. It was the impact of the shark number one, but don't forget the impact of the music. Dun, 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 uh-huh. dun, 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 you're like going, you know, and you know, it's coming, yep. you know? And it's, uh, you know, the way John Williams composed that whole, it's masterful, you know, and uh, but yeah, it it makes you worry about it. And then my parents are like going, I didn't spend X amount of dollars for you to swim in a pool, get in the water. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, you and I are the same generation. I remember
0: we, you know, I, we used to fall down the street playing ball or whatever. And my dad's line was, "Get up, walk it off," or my personal favorite, "Rub some dirt in it."
1: Oh yeah, yeah, I, I, I did that. I did that with my daughter. She, uh, she was in a tournament over the summer. She plays fast pitch softball on a travel team, and uh, she got a concussion. I just said, "Rub some dirt on it," and they're like, "You can't uh, do that." We got not she be concussion concussion. You know what? We you know what? all like of our parents.
0: Kids. All of our parents—they they would have taken us away from our parents—and
1: you know what? They did what
0: they did, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right. So, so let me share a quick Jaws story, and then and then I'll give you my first theater movie. So, uh, sure. my my daughter, who is 17 now, uh, over the last couple of years, we have realized she likes horror movies, and they re-released Jaws in the theaters a few months back. Mm. So, we went to go see it in like IMAX, and Tom, the whole time she was waiting for what line? What what's the line in that movie? You're gonna, You're gonna need, need, a, need a bigger a boat. Bigger boat. <laughs> that was. She was like, "When is it coming? When is it coming?" I'm like, "Oh, it'll be there. You'll know." <laughs> yeah. So, so I will tell you my my the first movie I ever saw was "You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown." I was probably
1: five in the theater. And yeah,
0: yeah. Oh, yeah. I thought that was a made-for-TV thing. Holy no, God. no. But but I will tell you uh, an R-rated movie story. So, my parents took me with my grandmother to go see. Saturday night fever oh. when it first came out and my my grandmother was a sweet old lady I mean she's been gone for a number of years now but even she was mortified if you remember that movie the I mean the le- just the whole movie was just atrocious for, for a kid. And I, yeah, my, we walked out of there. And my mother was like, Oh
1: my God, I can't believe we just sat through that with grandma. So See, I, I will share this with you since you brought that up. My first R rated movie was Conan the Barbarian, with Schwarzenegger. I love that movie. I was,
0: I love yeah. Sandal Bergman who, who played his uh, love interest. Uh, yeah. You know, she was a dancer. And I just love the way, the way, yeah, that I love that. But if you remember, he's got like 11 words in that movie. Because his English yeah. was not good back then,
1: and he they hired him for his
0: size,
1: and he hired a uh, bunch of his bodybuilding buddies from uh, Gold's Gym in the movie. Yep. So that's yeah. I've always got to – you know because when I used to weight train and all that stuff, I'm like, oh, there's which one's Franco Colombo? Which one's so and so? I used to know all of the you know I um, he used to follow that stuff back then. You
0: remember remember Pumping Iron when that oh, movie God, came yeah. out? So my dad took me to go see Pumping Iron in Manhattan, and there were actually a, bump, a bunch of bodybuilders there, and Franco was there, and he was a super super nice guy. Like Arnold was already too big, uh, really to show, but uh, Franco Columbo was there, and Ferrigno was there, yeah. and you know, some some things just sort of kind of cement themselves in your uh, in your memory. So, all right, so yeah. now let's talk about some cyber and some third party risk management. So, all right. when you and I first met. I was at Gartner and you were at CVS Caremark. And what we're going to talk about today is a challenge that a lot of people I talk to on a regular basis are running up against. We just had our customer advisory board meeting up in Boston a little while ago. And starting and building a third-party risk management program from the ground up is a huge issue for people. We've seen awareness around third party risk, and vendor risk, and supply chain risk spike. We know supply chain risk is a board level issue. I actually spoke with one of my former colleagues earlier today at Gartner, uh, and Gartner just recently added a cybersecurity person to their supply chain practice. And we talked a lot about nomenclature. Now, when you started at at CVS, did
1: they have a third party risk program at all? Nothing, nothing. And I'll give you a little bit of background. And what I can say is in the public domain, so I don't have to worry about okay. saying outside. Um, they were under a, um, they got hit with a 20 year, $20 million FTC consent decree. And this was back in the mid 20s for a, a litany of items. At that time, I was in security. And um, what happened was they came up with this thing called, they need a vendor assessment program. That's how it was turned at the time, and so nobody had any idea what to do. Nobody had any idea how to run it. Nobody had any idea of who should even own it. So it really came down. It started with an edict, where the chief compliance officer came out, blasted it to the VPs, to the to the um to the practice leads, the practice leaders, and the directive saying, going forward, you need to let. Uh, your your vendors have to go through this vendor assessment program. And as there was a big debate going on, sitting there going, you know, how are we going to get this moving? Who's going to do this? I volunteered for it. Be honest with you, Jeff. I was monitoring database access and stuff like this. And you're just, you know, oh, my God, you know, because I've, I've been an ex-auditor and all this other stuff. And uh, and I just I raised my hand. I said, I'll do this. So long story short, I volunteered for it. So I took it on. So it was housed in security at the time, but they turned and they said, since this is under the guidance of the the chief compliance officer, we need you to interact and work with compliance. So I had a colleague of mine in compliance. I was in security. And we came to a conclusion as to how are we going to do the assessments? Because that was first off, we had to start doing assessments. And we need to start documenting what our program is going to look like. And, And I'm sure we're going to be getting into this. Because you have to, if you don't do the foundation right, the house is going to collapse. So it's very important that you get the foundational components built first. So what I've always done, and I've actually put this out there for any of your users that want to go out there and look up what's called the Garuba Mortensen theorem. Because I actually came up with a way to think of this thing. And the reason why I came up with this is somebody came up to me and said, how did you start your program? What, what tool can I adhere to? What can I follow? And I came up with this theorem. And basically what it says is we started to devise and develop our procedures. How do we want this thing to operate? And I think what a lot of organizations do first is they try to figure out, you know, what they're on the hook for and just throw everything and say, that's what I got to tackle. And it's almost like sitting there going, I've been tasked to run a marathon by next year. Guess what? It ain't happening. Okay? You got to start walking. You might have to shed a couple of pounds. You got to make sure your knees and feet are okay. You got to get the proper gear. All the stuff that goes into it. So there's a lot of foundational components that go into this. So that's what we started. First thing we did was, who's going to own this thing? At that time, it was still in security. Security turned around and said, we really don't want it. Compliance turned around and said, we really don't want it. Privacy actually came in and said, we'll take it because through the risk lens, and this is what a lot of people have to understand, through the risk lens, everything was about the customer. Everything was about the patient. Everything was about the data subject, as we say in privacy speak. So with that, it was absorbed by the privacy group. And... Uh, so now we shifted into the privacy office, which was beautiful because we reported into the chief privacy officer, part of legal. So anytime you had something in your, you know, in your signature line, legal department, anytime you wanted something, you got it like that. Right. So it did have its benefits. Um, so, so, I it. It. so
0: I have a question. I have a question sure. on, on that reporting, because one of the challenges sure. that we still see in the third party risk space is that ownership thing. Yes. Right, So I did a webinar for ITGRC forum six months ago, and they wanted a polling question. So the polling question I said was, who owns cybersecurity in your supply chain? Mm-hmm. And as you would imagine, about 50% of the people said the CISO and other people said the CRO. We saw compliance. We saw ERM, uh, the CIO, et cetera. But then I followed it up with another question. So how many of the CISOs that own it can say no, right? And yeah. none of them. So so I'd be interested to hear a little bit more detail sort of other than, well, we don't want it. We don't want it. Like, what did that conversation look like when you figured out where it was going to go? Was the plan to stay long-term? Was it, hey, let's put it there for now and then see? Like, I'd be interested to kind of hear what was going on behind the curtain.
1: Um, You know, it was uh, the chief privacy officer was the one who said we should own it. Here's why. And he made the business case and sold it to the to the C-suites. And and that's the way it went. And I thought it was so funny because I remember having a similar conversation a couple of years later as our program really got foothold and was really taken off. And we were recognized as a well-oiled machine. And um, I remember talking to one of the heads in privacy, and I said, um, You know, I started hearing rumblings from the upper echelons because they're sitting now, they're coming back on chief compliance officer saying, You know what, we should, we should take on the vendor assessment program now. And the information, the CISO at the time is going, You know what, we should take on the program. And I'm like, What's all this going on here? Why are they fighting over us? He goes, Tom, how many programs do you know in an organization that has been started foundationally and works? It's coming in on time. It's coming in on budget. We're hitting our service level agreements to the business unit. How many? Very few. This is a feather in the cap of any organization that takes this on and lets it run autonomously. And that's the way we built the program where, you know, the, the, the bus adage, I can get taken out by a bus and whoever falls into my steps We've developed the procedures, we've developed the standards and the processes that it's autonomous.
0: Right. Okay, great. Um, all right, so so foundation elements, right? So you talked about yeah. that. Um what it, so with regard to a foundational sort of question, one of the challenges that people run into is they have a lot of vendors, right? We talk to people. 1,000, 2,000, 3,000. We we have customers that are monitoring 10,000, 20,000. We have one customer that's monitoring 80,000 entities. Um, You can't all treat them the same. So how did you prioritize? Because that's always one of the first steps people have to run into. How did you determine? And I would imagine a company like CVS Caremark, you probably had up into the thousands of vendors, right? And back then there weren't really tools to do it.
1: So right. how would you prioritize? Just, right. We just had a GRC platform. And guess what? We were, along with Audit, <laughs> we were the, the only people at that time to use. And everybody knows the big name, starts with three mm-hmm. letters. And, mm-hmm. um, but that's what we were using at the time. So we didn't have any tools. We didn't have the various types of tools that are out there today. So we had to do everything through emails and stuff like that and spreadsheets, like the SIG questionnaire, things of that nature. Um, but what we did was a couple of things. First off, we had to prioritize who our vendors were. A lot of organizations struggle with that. We developed an in-house, people use the term inherent risk. We called it exposure risk. The reason why we call it exposure risk is what are we exposing ourselves to the vendor before we actually do our due diligence? Now they say inherent risk. What am I inheriting before I do my proper due diligence? So You know, if you hear me use the term exposure risk, it's the same as saying inherent risk. And the things that we looked at to be able to draw this up was you're looking at the type of data. What are the data elements? First name, last name, street address. Oh, social security numbers, health information. Is it company confidential information? Is it strategic data? Is it financial information that is not yet public? Um, Marketing information, marketing in terms of strategies and things like that. So we took the type of information, understanding the data elements, then we looked at it from the actual, how many records are we talking about? We're talking 10,000 records, 10 million records, 100 million records, because that makes such a difference through the privacy lens in the event there's an incident or a breach, because that's what everybody focuses on. The first thing you hear is the number. Oh my God, it was 10 millions of records, but of what? Right. Street addresses. Mm -hmm. Who cares? Oh, wait, health information. Now you have my attention. Right. And other elements we took in is where's the data being stored? Where's the primary data center, the backup data center? Where's the processing being done and where is not just the processing, but other exposure points of the data? Do you have a follow the sun methodology? Because if you have a follow the sun methodology, you might have strategic contracts with big dog clients that will tell you all of my data must be processed within the U.S. borders. And if you have a follow the sun methodology and you don't disclose that, guess what? You're in violation of a contract. And when you're in violation of the contract, I can guarantee you there's a dollar value affixed to that kind of a incident, if you want to use that term, it's not an incident like a cyber breach, but it's an incident of violating the contract. And you can sit there and say, okay, there are a million records affected. If they're going to find you a dollar a record, you're going to now have to write a check back to your client for $5 million. Right. So these are the things you got to think about. Um, so that helped to prioritize. Um, now, let me let me ask you a question, Tom, sure. because
0: I, this this is something that we've seen more as, a, as sort of an add-on, right? So you're looking at the data, and that totally makes sense, and the compliance and legal what about operational dependencies process right because some partners are super critical
1: but you may not share any data with them Were you that looking at true. that stuff as well At that point in time we were not we let that up to the business unit because you can also have a particular you know when you're when you're CVS I mean I used to tell people they're like oh you're the nine you're the 900 pound gorilla I said no we're flipping king kong <laughs> okay right. you really are I said you know and we dealt with all the big dogs, the Cognizants, the Tatas, the IBMs, the HPs of the world. We, we have them all. And the, the luxury of being that King Kong, so to speak, and having all of these organizations where it's, you know, the business units could actually play the vendors off each other going, well, this is what I'm doing. If you don't like it, guess what? I'll switch over to the other vendor because they're doing the same thing and I can make that switch pretty seamlessly. Yeah. So there was a bit of that uh, positioning that the business units had, but from a, from the, you know, from the perspective of, uh, importance and criticality to the business unit, uh, take a look at a data center or not even a data center, but a call center. Okay. We had one specific call center supporting all three critical business units. The funniest conversation I had, we had an incident at a call center and I was sitting on the line with these three guys and somebody goes, who owns this relationship anyway? And somebody goes, I don't know who's cutting the check. They didn't know. Nobody knew who, all they knew is this call center supports my organization. I I have no idea if I'm the one who's cutting the check. Maybe I'm cutting a third of it. I don't know whose name's on the contract. Right. So it's kind of funny when you get to that echelon and you get that level of we've been doing business with them for so long, it, it, you know, you have to bring it up and, and that's the way you got to slice it and dice it. But back to the prioritization, if I may too, is, you start taking all this into into the uh, into the queue, and then you got to start saying how important is it overall to the organization. My job was not to prevent a business unit from doing business with a particular vendor. I was not going to be known as Doctor No. Our job was to make sure that we gave the business unit a separate set of eyes, so they knew through the risk lens that we were looking at. Our job was to protect the company, and so you know in the 5 years that i ran the program i've often said i had a blackjack hand which was my team and i have turned away 21 vendors from doing business with us because they were too risky but we actually had a board that when we were done with our analysis we sent the reports up to a uh, we called it the vendor we we originally called it the vendor assessment committee but we changed it to the vendor review committee because sometimes you give them reports and they disappear and the business unit's going i haven't heard back and it's like oh let me go check the vacuum Because they just, (laughs) somebody got wind of it. It's like, you can't use that. Somebody heard the term vacuum. All right, vendor risk committee. And so, so we then changed it to vendor review committee because this was literally everybody had to sign off. There was no majority here. You had the chief risk officer, uh, excuse me, chief privacy officer, the CISO, chief accounting officer, the CIO, and we had another executive from the privacy office. All five of them had to sign off on the use of that vendor. One of them turned around and said, no, that was it. Deal was done. And a lot of times it came from the CISO or it came from the CPO. Um, so, um, and, and uh, you know, the other seven, if you're wondering, you know, I had 28 that were actually turned away. It was because at that point in time, in my position, we didn't have the additional information that allowed us to preclude the vendor. Like I came back and I was, I said to the CISO at the time, "Why did you turn this guy away? Why did you turn this vendor away?" And he was like, "Tom, I know some things in my position that's going on there that you're not, you weren't exposed to in your analysis." And the right. funny thing going through my head was, "Well, well, hell, we just blew 30 hours doing this, you know, 30 days during this assessment. We could have done about four other assessments had you told me this, <laughs> you know, at the front right. end." But that's not the way it works, obviously. That's not the way it works. Right. But um, you know, then you go back to the uh, to the business unit and tell them. And, um, but you build that in and and the business unit understands, and this is what's so important is you being able to sell the importance and the value add you bring to the business unit, having them know that you're helping them to sleep better at night. Right.
0: Okay. So, so let's build on the prioritization. Um, Mm -hmm. one of the things that we see, and I, you know, I used to advise people about this in my previous role, and we see it in our customer base now is that you may have a thousand vendors, but not all of them are as important or is valuable? Were you were you treating all of your vendors and all of your third parties and partners the same? Or did you use the prioritization work you did to help sort of drive, you know, how deep do you go down the hole?
1: No, I think that's I, that's really important to understand. And I, And let me throw this at you too, Jeffrey. I think it's important for organizations to understand there's a separation in vendor risk. You have your vendor network and then you have your pure supply chain. Okay. Your pure supply chain is somebody's providing you something as an end product. So if I'm Ford Motor Company, I have somebody providing me the tires. Maybe it's Firestone. I have somebody providing me the spark plugs like Motorcraft, it's the glass, PPG, something like that. If one of them has an issue, whether it's a strike, whether it's a factory fire or something like that, how's that going to impact me to make the Mustang or the Explorer or a Lincoln or something like that? In your vendor network, it's more like, as people typically hear, if a particular vendor goes down, oh my God, I can't access my checking account. Or for some reason, I can't access my health information. That's more of the vendor side. So yeah. at that organization, we separated the pure supply chain, okay? Because you're dealing with thousands of vendors. Think of every. you walk into a CVS store, right? You walk into a CVS store. How many items do you see on the rack, right? Right. So you have all those, and, and don't forget too, CVS also have their own line of products and things like a food bar and stuff like that. Well, who's making the food bar? How is it supplied? You know, but we knew tying into those perspective, there are certain vendors like dropship vendors. Like if you went to CVS.com and you drop, you know, you uh, you purchase something, we wanted to make sure that the vendor who was sending that item at least had some adequate controls over basically your. White page information, you know, stuff, you you know, uh, first name, last name, straight address. You know, they weren't getting anything like Social Security numbers or credit card information. It was just what do we need to do to deliver the product to Jeffrey Wheatland? That was it. So what we did then is we actually done again. Remember, we were in the privacy office. So how we addressed it was we looked at everything first through the privacy lens. Are they exposed to information? that um, f- will force us to do an actual technical assessment, if I may use that term, okay? So we did first, because our charter said, all vendors must go through the vendor assessment program. So the first step of doing a technical assessment is first, we did a preliminary privacy assessment. Is this particular vendor going to be exposed to, you know, this? I'll give you a great example. One guy called me up and this gets back to criticality, right? This one organization called me up and he says tom we have a critical vendor and i was told we need to go through you to do a vendor assessment i said well what does the vendor do he says well they have all of the plans and schematics for every cvs store and this is a kind of like a single source provider this is the only one we use i said okay you really don't need to go through the assessment well why is that they're critical i said I can walk into any CVS store and see where the outlets are, see where the lights are, see what's on the shelves. It's not important to me. Not saying it's not important to you, but it's not important to me. It's not important to the to the clients and customers from a data protection perspective. So it has so it has value but no risk necessarily. Exactly. There's no risk. It's the same way and I'm sure you've heard this a thousand times. What about vendors that cut the grass for your facilities, you know? What are they exposed to? Of course not. Now, Did we assess them? Yes, we performed the preliminary privacy assessment, made the determination based on the scope of work that we don't need to move forward. So we've actually assessed them. We have a record of it. We have a report on it. So every four months or every three months, every quarter, I had the FTC coming in, going through my assessment inventory. And if they pulled that one out and said, oh, okay, I can understand why based on the scope of work, you didn't need to do technical assessment if we find out that they are going to be exposed to data think of this and i've said this to people what about your custodial staff think about the custodial staff people go oh they're just you know sweeping the floors and stuff but however they're walking into your conference rooms what's to prevent them from how many times have you seen this on the whiteboard? do not erase clay right you know and or or uh, plugging
0: our, or plugging in a uh, uh, snooper. Uh, you know, my, happens my, all boss, the time. Yeah, my my boss, Paul, he worked at Pony Express. If you remember those devices, yes. you plug those things in and they were getting everything. They were attaching to
1: your network. So Absolutely. Right. So it's understanding the scope of work. And that's where the value we come in is we have those conversations with the vendor. And that also comes with experience. So everybody that I hired was either a security or an audit professional, because at that point in time, the third party risk was still very virgin to a lot of organizations, including right. ours, of course. So, um, you know, that was part of building the team. So part of the foundational principles is once we started to realize what our guardrails were, you know, uh, what's outside of our scope, as I mentioned, we didn't touch anything that was going to the stores. It was basically focused on a vendor network. We understood what the data elements were and all the other things that focused on the inherent or exposure risk, as I mentioned. Then we started saying, how long should it take us to do an assessment? What are we going to use? What's the ground rules? How are we going to do an assessment? Are we using a questionnaire? Oh, we didn't have to develop anything, you know, at shared assessments. And that's what we did. So we reached out to shared assessments. Um, I'm proud to say that I was the first... Um, person to represent the healthcare industry in the shared assessments program on their US steering committee. Back then it was all uh, financial services and, and other uh, providers like, you know, like Iron Mountain or SunGuard, people like that. So CPS was the first one to sit on that. And now he's starting to share with them, look, you know, third party risk management is obviously industry agnostic. So people have to understand the importance of third party risk management to their organizations. So as you start to develop your procedures, your processes, you understand what the processes are, and you're allowed to have that fluidity and be able to make those changes. And then you have your practices. And the thing that I preach about practices is you don't need to document every single nuance. And this is where I see people making the the amateur error of then I get the email, then it goes here. Then so and so, and you're going, you don't need to document that as long as you right. understand it's it.
0: It's so rigid, too, though, you end off. up with that very checkbox mentality.
1: Exactly, exactly. Yeah. You have this, che- and then your procedures are this thick, and it's like, you don't need it that thick. Right. You know, and so you, you cut that down, and it's like, that's a practice. This is something we identify, and we know how to do it internally, and my management knows what we do. But if right. an auditor was to come in, a regulator was to come in, I was able to say, here's our procedures. And the reason why we started with our procedures, Jeffrey, was because as an ex-auditor, if I come in, the first place I'm going to, I want to see the procedures. A lot of people start with the policy. That's the wrong place to start. Because I cannot tell you how many people I've seen craft the policy first. And then as they're honing in on the procedures, they can't support the policy. And a lot of organizations I've seen getting written up for that. Because what they're doing does not support the policy, right?
0: So that's actually, I think that's a really crucial sort of takeaway, right? Which is that the policy is important, but procedure is sort of what moves the car, right? So it's, it's your game plan. I think that's, I think that's helpful. And then I, I also, I just want to back up a little bit because you sure said a word and then you kind of glossed right over it, and I want to come back to it. You used the word charter, mm-hmm. right? And that's a really, really important thing. When I was advising clients sort of all across the security and risk space, I always said, you got to do governance. And the key part of governance is the charter, right? And I'm going to say a lot of the people we talk to in the third-party risk space, supply chain risk space are probably not creating that, that charter. So what did, what did your charter look like for the, the
1: third-party program at, at, uh, at CVS? The charter that we established at the time was basically saying, we're in the privacy group. Why are we in the privacy group? What is our, in, what is our goal here? Okay. We're looking at through, as I mentioned, the privacy lens, the privacy risk lens. And here's the reason why. And from that perspective, from the charter, it also enabled us to define, and this is where the policy comes in. This is where I defined my stakeholders. When do I reach out to information security? I'm not going to reach out to them every time. When do I reach out to procurement? When do I reach out to legal? When do I have to reach out to our business continuity folks? When do I reach out to facilities management who's responsible for on-site access? Um, On and on and on. So having that charter sets the tone that you are operating within a certain space and you're looking at the program and operating the program within that organization's view. Okay, and I think that's why you're going to start to see and I know you're going to be going this way down in our conversation here because this is a constant one. I get this. I'm going to if I may circle back here to something we were talking about earlier, where does third party risk reside? I'm starting to see a shift of third party risk management moving out of security and moving into other verticals. And I'm seeing that because, and again, I know we're going to get into this. Is third party risk used to be looked at this way through the cyber lens. Now it's this right? because there's so many other spectrums, other, other colors in the spectrum that you got to focus on ESG geolocational geopolitical. I mean, and even if you're sitting there going, I'm it, what do I care about geopolitical or ge- geolocational? Take a look what's going on in the South China sea and half and 80% of our chips come out of there. You might sit there and say, well, we're dealing, we're dealing business with the, the big it shops. Um, uh, they're in the Indian Ocean. They're in India. They're in Indonesia. They're at the Philippines. You know, what are you doing from a supply si- from a ch- from a vendor chain side? Are you prepared for any down, uh, you know, downstream effects that any hostilities that may occur in a region is going to befall those locations? Again, I know I- I'm speaking in fragments here, and I-, I and I don't mean to do that, but. This is the way people got to think. You're not thinking macro, uh, micro anymore. You've got to right. start thinking macro. Right.
0: But so so I like that. I agree with you 100%. One of the challenges, I think, for someone who's building a program from scratch, if you start with that big lens, oh yeah, it, it may appear to be an insurmountable problem. I, I tell people all the time, gen, and my friends, family, whatever, generally speaking, what you see as one big problem is actually a pile of smaller problems, Yeah. right? Let's start picking that pile apart and, and I think, you know, to your point, IT is, is a good starting point. One of the challenges that I see people run into, though, is what I call the problem of scope and scale. If you isolate cybersecurity, the actual impact is going to have a smaller number of zeros than if you lost one of the critical member parts of your supply chain. But the failure of the IT or the cyber piece would have a magnifying effect right? So I think understanding, and you talked about this before when we were talking about dependencies, I think that's a really important thing for for people to understand. So so we talked a lot about the foundational thing. So let me ask you one question.
1: Mm-hmm. If
0: you had to do it again, starting today, is there anything you would do that you didn't or that you wouldn't do that you did when you started that program years ago? Wow. That's... Uh-
1: I would probably try to explain the importance of other vendor risks that are outside of the privacy, um, the privacy lens, because mind you, everything we were looking at at that time was under the privacy and the cyber lens. OK, because I think to take us to the next generation of third party risk, that's incorporating other things that could. Before the organization and we started doing that i actually wrote up one of our big tig- big top tig- one of our big dog it shops because they were doing processing at a facility in um down in new orleans that four months earlier they were hit by one of the ma- one of the big hurricanes and i'm sitting there saying okay with all due respect this is kind of like hurricane alley and how many times has the has the organization uh you know, been hit down here from a hurricane. How important is this to the business unit? How often do you test now your continuity plan? So you got to start asking these other questions. And this is where people got to start reason. It's not all about IT. It's also about, I, IT is one thing. It's more about, do you have the people that are going to be able to support it? Now, mind you, this is before the remote, the, the work for remote-from-home stuff. <laughs> right,
0: that's an entirely um, different problem. But it's yeah. an entirely
1: different problem. But uh, if I may throw this at you, uh, I, I was in London a couple of years ago at a, at a risk conference, and I think one of the... you know, uh, There was a, a member from the um, Financial Conduct Authority, one of the, the UK regulators, that was talking about a, uh, uh, a typhoon that hit the, uh, the Indian shores about a year or two earlier and said how it brought down the British banking system for 48 hours. And it's not like the servers were underwater. Yeah, obviously, you know, you had, uh, I mean, all the, what happened was concentration risk. And what people didn't understand was, and this is where the, the regulators in the UK were talking about, and they really started pushing it to the, U, to the regulators here in the US is, this might be an uncomfortable conversation for you to have with your big dog vendors, but you need to say, look, I pretty much know that you're also supporting my competitor, but we need to make sure these critical processing are not all being done at the same location. Um, So from a CVS perspective, if we had, say, all of our prescription fulfillment was being done in Bangalore, we also needed to make sure you weren't doing all of Walgreens there, you weren't doing Rite-Aids there, and you weren't doing Walmarts there. Because can you imagine if a typhoon took out Bangalore? And now you have three quarters, if not 80% of people in the United States that are relying on prescriptions from one of those big dogs, all of a sudden they can't get them.
0: Right. Well, that, but we're seeing, we're seeing a lot more interest in that from a financial services perspective, right? The new new DORA regulation out of the EU, uh, the the financial oversight in the US, the SEC regulation, and they're talking a lot about that concentration risk. So- when you built this program, wasn't really a lot of information. How did you figure out where your potential concentration and cascading risks were? Like, how did you figure that part out? I mean, your supply chains have to be super, super complicated. Your vendor landscape, where, where'd where you go for that information? And, and what'd you do when you didn't have it, right? That in and of itself is a risk.
1: Well, we were very fortunate that... Um, we were able to acquire, every time we did an assessment, we would obviously review not just the contract, but the statements of work. You have to read the statements of work and get an understanding of where the processing is being done. What other processing is being done. I mean, you can have a, a vendor like IBM doing 35 different scopes of work for you. you know. And what we would do is, um, one of the things that we did, because we actually had it uh, in our uh, policy, not a procedure been on our policy that any vendor that had an offshore presence that was processing our data we had to at least visit their we had to do a physical on-site assessment okay didn't mean I needed to fly out to India or Indonesia or the Philippines every year uh, you know we had partners that were able to do those physical on-site assessments for us but the other thing that we were able to do too is saying, How do we adhere to that policy? I'm not saying we got to visit a particular facility in Bangalore. We might say, okay, we're going to hit everything in Bangalore this year. Next year, we'll hit Hyderabad. The following year, we'll go to uh, Noida Uh, and on and on and on. So you can stagger it by location, or you can go out there and hit multiple locations based on projects. You could do it based on criticality to the business units, based on criticality to the organization as a whole. Um, and then you could just sit there and say, hey, I'm going to bring in Gorgon. We have five-hour critical vendors here. Guess what? We're going to go see them all in a, in a one-week period. Right. So, so that's important to be able to scale that and to scope that. But uh, you heard me mention this before, put yourself in a position to win. So anytime we figured out that we were going to be out of bounds with respect to our policy or procedures, guess what? We changed it. I changed my policy one time in a five-year period. My procedures, we were constantly updating it. Right. You know. So every after budget season, budget season for us was May, June, July, after I knew what I was gonna get, which was usually that. But every time, you know, every time you've done through and budget, that's a different season, problem altogether. Oh yeah. I mean everybody goes through it. But um, but you know what, I sit down with my team and this is so important, and we would spend a good two weeks of going, what were our hits, what were our misses? Let's focus on the misses. Let's focus on the challenges. What could we have done better? Now let's update our procedures. So if a regulator comes in and says something, now we're covered from when we enact these procedures to going forward. And this is so important. And this also ties into standards that change within your organization. So you have to update your own assessment standards. For instance, there was a period once, um, I'll give you this example. I had uh, one of our vendors who I had a very good personal relationship with, besides a business relationship, reached out to me and said, hey, Tom, I just want to give you a heads up that we're not going to be in compliance uh, by the end of the month with respect to the connectivity uh, email that went out. I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, an email went out two months ago that said you have three months to get rid of all your VPN connectivity and you have to connect to our network, hard business-to-business connectivity. And I'm just letting you know, we're not going to be able to achieve that. And I'm sitting there going, can I call you back? So I called the so, And I told him about the conversation I had. And after he was like, all that stuff, hold on. I'm going to conference you in. So he pulls in the director of network security and says, remember that memo you sent out? How come Tom wasn't made aware of it? And he's like, oh my God, I never thought of telling you, Tom. And I said, yeah, because we just did about 20 assessments of vendors that are tapping into our network and not once have we asked them, you know, you know, and if we're and if they're using VPN, we said, OK, we never ask them additional questions like, well, wait a minute. This new standard goes into effect. How are you how are you moving forward with respect to being in alignment to, uh, you know. Sorry, my cat's rubbing up against my piece. <laughs> no, no worries. Every time the camera's on, he's got to show up. So, <laughs> no worries. My, yeah, my my dogs are actually in the other room, thankfully. He may crash. So, um, so, it, it, and these are the things you got to consider, you know. And um, right. and this is what we're tasked with. So we, going forward, he said, starting now. How about now, go? <laughs> so it's like um, we turned and said, "Hey, going forward." We have to make sure organizations are doing business-to-business connectivity. And um, sorry about this. <laughs> this is what happens when you're live, right? The joy, the joy <laughs> of
0: working from home.
1: Oh, <laughs> sorry. Uh, um, no, it's okay. But, but you, yeah, know what, so, you know
0: what's funny about that, though, is now it would be the opposite discussion, right? No direct connections, only VPNs.
1: Yeah. You know, it's, well, yeah, because, you know, Covid changed everything, and um, and I will share this with you. Um, we might have even had a conversation about this not too long ago, but I think it's very important for uh, people listening in and watching this to understand the number one challenge that third party risk management had during Covid was updating their data privacy and security addictions to allow their vendors to work to work remotely. Right. Right. because they needed to do that from a legal perspective and a cyber threat perspective right
0: but it's but it's interesting because that is essentially a risk discussion right a risk appetite yes. or a risk tolerance discussion right if right. you want to continue to be able to deliver x we need to be more flexible and and you know one of the things we saw during covid was organizations took on a lot more risk in certain areas in order to keep the lights on yeah right and 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 i like i like to hear that flexibility and and the kind of revisiting you know i always tell people you need to have defensibility right we knew this was a risk whatever it was knowing what we know now we would continue to manage it in that way or knowing what we know now we would manage it in a different way and and i like to hear that and you were definitely ahead of the curve cuz too many people put in these these very very rigid sets of of requirements so Yeah, you have to uh, be
1: flexible. I mean, I know you have friends in the military and the old military axiom was you have to be fluid because being flexible is too rigid. You got to be able to turn on a dime. You have to. You got to be on a turn on a dime. But as an auditor, and I'm sharing this to you and all your friends, whatever you do, document it. Document why you've done it. Why you've made the decision that you made. That's what they want to see. They want to see that you did a risk-based approach as to saying, this is why we're doing it. This is why we made that change. It's gonna be a big feather in the cap of everybody, not just you and your program, right. but of the organization. You're actually helping the organization look better using and applying the risk lens. Yeah.
0: If if your answer is we did it this way, cuz yeah, that is not yeah. that is absolutely not not defensible. Exactly. So, exactly. All right, great, great stuff. So over the five years you ran the program, can you share two or three examples of some big changes that you were not forced to make, but that you recognize had to, things things that needed to be changed just as you started to mature the,
1: the program? I think the biggest change that we made, and um, it was a policy change, and I'll, and I'll explain this to you, was the one policy change that I made. Because at that time in our policy, it said we would look at any vendor on an annual basis that was either touching credit card information or touching health information. From a credit card information perspective, it seems logical. Why? Because PCI PCI directs that anybody in possession of credit card information reviews their controls on an annual basis. There's no HIPAA requirement that said you have to do this also for any vendor or, or for yourself being in possession of health information. But because we viewed health information as the bread and butter of our organization, I risk rated it as... Um, higher, as high- uh, higher, higher than the compliance requirement. I love that. Exactly. So we made that decision, and so with respect to that, when it came time to do budgeting, I'm looking at, and this is something with respect to how many reassessments do I have to do the following year? So I start looking at my reassessment schedule, and my rule of logic is. We've always noted through our historical analysis that organizations bring on between 18 and 20% net new vendors every year. Okay. And that's a good figure to know, 18 to 20%. So, whatever your projection is, add 18 to 20%. You know, and it could just be, hey, I use somebody for this scope of work. I'm going to be bringing on somebody new next year, but I'm going to keep this one in my vendor pool just in case I need them for something else. So as I start doing my analysis, looking at the trends of what I have from assessments that's on the horizon, I started sitting there going, wait a minute, there's no way we're going to bang out all these assessments. There's just too many assessments that need to be done, whether it's based on an annual, whether it's based on every other year and stuff that I did two years ago were coming due, or stuff that I did three years ago was coming due. Okay. And so I went back to our chief privacy officer. And I gave him a call and I love him to death. We're we're good friends to this day. And it was like one of those, oh, my dear boy, you're asking me for more money. Guess what? It's not going to happen. So now I had to go back and I'm sitting there going crunching the numbers. And I went back to him and I said, look, I'm looking at everything here. Here's where I need. He goes, all right, well, let's do this exercise together. He said, let's look at the policy. Because I told him, I said, you know, we have a risk-based approach. We had a bar score, vendor assessment, risk rating, which was actually a very unique. It was a combination of the inherent risk or exposure risk that I mentioned. It, we scored our SIG questionnaire. We we're one of the first to do that. We scored it by component, by section. And then what we did that was very unique to our program was, uh, because I'm sure you've probably seen or heard stories of this is, you know, you're know you doing an assessment and it looks great on the surface when you start diving in, you're going, oh my God, I wouldn't trust him with my data or vice versa. Somebody might sit there going, we don't have anything, we're we're clueless. And then you start looking at stuff going, you guys actually have your ducks lined up. You just might need to fine tune it and document the stuff. You have your defined processes, you just don't have them documented. Get them documented, and then you got a good solid process. So as we're making those, those were the three scores that my assessors would do, that final score, though it was, you know, the smallest number that tied into our vendor assessment rating. Um, that's what came into play. And then he came back to me and he says, hey, Tom, take out the amount of um, vendors that are scheduled for the annual assessments based on health information. So I said, okay. And then when I took that out, I said, holy cow, everything's achievable now. I said, but why am I doing that? I'm going to violate our policy. He said, Tom, there's no HIPAA document. There's no HIPAA regulation that says you have to assess these vendors on an annual basis. And I said, but, but, you know, it's in our policy. He said, and here's where I had the, you know, Southwest. Do you want to get away right now? Moment. He goes, Tom, you own the policy, change right. the policy. <laughs> and it was but like, I think that's, that's a great
0: example of, um, engaging with business stakeholders and recognizing that everything yeah. is a trade-off,
1: right? It is.
0: Yes, we can save money. We can save human capital. We can change process procedure, but there's going to be a, a risk balance there. And I think that in a lot of cases, if you can defend it, and I mean, you you articulated it very well, as long as you can explain it, they may not like your explanation and they may make you change what you're doing but at least you have the ability to get some, some breathing room as opposed to that kind of, you know, well, why you do that? Cause I'm Jeffrey and I said, so right. Yeah. Nobody's interested in that. And as wonderful as some people may think I am and as wonderful as people think you are, that is just not sort of justifiable.
1: Right. Right. You're right.
0: Uh, all right. Great. So, um, so as the program started to mature, right, you got better. The technology got better. Um, what what are some of the things you saw that got kind of easier? You know, year two, three, four, five, that enabled you to sort of have a legacy to leave to uh, to the organization when you when you walked out door. Because too many programs I have seen security more broadly are so tied to the power of the leader. When that leader goes, everything falls apart. So like, how did you get to the point where you felt comfortable walking out the door and leaving, you know, the organization with with something that would live past you other other than the, the, uh, the algorithm you created?
1: It was the partnerships. Um, the running gag my team had that when I was in Pittsburgh and I would have to go visit the mothership up in Rhode Island or I had to go visit our... Um, or other processing facility out in Scottsdale, the running gag was, oh, is Tom here? We had no idea. And, uh, because I would say, look, I'm not there to see you. I'm there to talk to the business units. You know, we're looking at scheduling. I want to go talk to them. Everyone from, uh, sourcing and procurement through, um, uh, IT I have people and I would sit with them. And I, like, if you owned a business unit, Jeff, and I would come in and I'd sit down and I'd go, so Jeffrey, what do you have coming up? Um, on the six, eight months from a vendor perspective, how can I help you? What value can I bring? And you could turn to me. And if you say, Hey, Tom, I got these vendors being onboarded in May, June, or July in the back of my mind, I'm going, okay, who's on vacation in May, June, or July. Right. Because if I got half of my team on vacation, I'm, I'd be like, Jeffrey, get this in the queue now. So my guys can start working on it. If not, last thing I want to do is go, Oh, Jeff, I don't know if we're going to be able to hit your deliverable time frame. That's the last thing you want to hear. Right. And yeah, the other things are
0: not interested in that.
1: No. And then you got to take into consideration too. Don't forget, is my vendor going to be around? Meaning their staff, how many times have you engaged in doing an assessment? It's like, oh, so-and-so is taking a two week cruise. And you're like going, oh my gosh, I got to get this thing wrapped up. What am I going to do? Happens right. all the time. Um and, and, all not, and not
0: all those partners were doing as good a job in documentation as you guys were. So right. if, you know, Bob or Mary are out and, and they're the only ones that can answer the the question, that's right.
1: So uh, and, challenging. And that was one part of the legacy that I was proud that we did was we established the relationships. And I had, uh, now in legacy audit, from an audit perspective, usually you don't want the same auditor going in and assessing the same business unit over and over. Because you can obviously have relationships and things like that. But, you know, for vendor risk management, it's different. You want to have, I believe, you want to have that relationship. And plus, look at it from a geographic perspective, why would I have somebody in Rhode Island trying to support somebody in Arizona? It makes no sense. And I told my team, too, I said, I don't want you to just set up a meeting and be on the phone. Go to their office. Go talk to them. Pay them a visit. Let them know you're real. People, you know, people are more visual than their auditory, particularly in this in this aspect. But the other thing I I wanted people to take away is how many vendors we have helped in increasing their cyber posture, increasing their privacy posture. I had so many organizations that reached out either directly to me or directly to my team and said, hey, this was a little painful but you've increased my posture because guess what? I now have another client that's sending me a questionnaire and they're going to assess me next month. Now I feel much more confident in making sure that I'm able to achieve and hit their security and privacy requirements. So so in other words, thank you for
0: poking me in the eye with a stick. Now, at least next month, I won't get poked in the other eye.
1: Right, exactly. And that's, that's what it is. So it's almost like, uh, I wish I could send you the bill. You know, uh, but but that's what we've done. And the IT shops, the business units, they saw the value in that. Um, I I remember in the infancy of the program, we had one particular sole source vendor, small organization. We wrote them up for over ready for this 40 findings, for lack of a better term, 40, 4-0. And um, there was no way we could tell the business unit you couldn't use them. They were one of the only dogs in town. So what do we do? We took off our assessment hat on. We put our consultant hat on. And we actually worked with the business unit and the vendor to develop and build that posture doing the typical high, medium, low. Let's not let's not even worry about the lows. And we'll eyeball the mediums. We'll, instead of a typical maybe 60 to 90 days to close out a medium risk item, we'll give you an additional two, three months, okay, with my approval. Let's focus on the highs or those high mediums, let's get those under wraps. Let's contain them. So if I hear this knock on my door and it's a regulator or an auditor, I can explain to them and say, here's why we're using this this particular vendor. We've approved the sign off. Because I understood, and this is the value, you've got to understand the importance of that particular vendor to that business unit. Um, this this was a business unit that was, you know, the big dogs like the CVS is the Walgreens to them. A lot of the mom and pop stores, um, when they want to retire, they'll sell their client base, their customer base to, to them. And so now you got to take their prescription and customer inventory and put it into the CVS or the Walgreens or the White Aid, etc. their inventory. You got to sync up the prescriptions, sync up all that stuff. And a lot of these organizations that do this, it's literally they're going line by line, you know, and not everybody... 12 years ago had that type of um uh had the tools and things like that. So that's what they had to do. And you can't turn them around, so can't use them because they don't have these kind of controls in place. Business is gonna tell you, go pound salt, I'm using them because there's nobody else that can do this. Right.
0: Yeah, and we and we see that in all verticals, like every across all verticals, right? They're all using Google, Amazon, uh, you know, Rackspace, whatever. But it's when you start getting into the vertical-specific things, the you know, the vertical-specific SaaS offerings or the vertical-specific things. And, you know, banking is a great example. There are big companies that are providing back-end services for banking where there are no other options, right? Yeah. And there's no way to get away from that concentration risk. And one of the things uh, that came out of, um, you know, Gartner every year does their predicts reports. Well, one of the predictions in the cloud was that we're going to see further consolidation in the big cloud providers. So you're going to start to lose the ability to move away from concentration risk. And then it's a matter of, you know, sometimes risk management is raising awareness. Hey, we have this problem and there is no solution. So what do you want to do? Like I have a, a friend of mine, he was a CISO for uh, a very large uh, um, manufacturer, and they had a sole source provider. They did not have a lot of confidence in that company's stability. They wrote a check for $5 million. They filled their warehouse with raw material, which is what they would have needed if that vendor couldn't function for three months. That was a business decision they made because they didn't have any any confidence. So, no. all right, Tom. So we have spoken for a while today. Um, we could talk forever. Couple of last questions. So Sure. Any, anything I didn't ask you about starting up a program that you think would be useful for the listeners? Uh,
1: boy, um, I, I touched on this just a little bit earlier, but I cannot stress the importance of this is document, document, document. It is a lifesaver. Um Know when to save an email when somebody says, yeah, I'm giving you the the approval for this. Don't just ignore it and bury it. Save it into a folder because it's going to be a lifesaver for you. Self-preservation is a wonderful thing. And a lot of people, it it saves you a ton of time on the back end. Um, Where you can, save that information. Save off anything that comes down to an authorization. And uh, visit your procedures and your processes and your practices, visit it regularly. Um, I've often used the term I, you know, when I, when I teach the CTPRP and other certifications, I used to say, if we had actually, uh, like a patron saint, so to speak, I often referred to Peyton Manning. Okay. I, 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 I I I need some expansion there. Okay. What is Peyton Manning, what is, what do you, what do you know about Peyton Manning? What does he do besides, you know, chicken parm, you know, all well, the, the Geico the he, commercials? He does. I know, I he know his about?
0: brother as a Giants fan, I know his brother much better. Uh, well, okay. he was a quarterback. He was a, a big, a big prep guy. Uh, he learned his opponents. Um, he was always, uh, he called his own plays. Um He was widely regarded. I'm actually surprised he has not gone into coaching because he was widely regarded as a a great, you know, great sort of mentor and and coach. No, I'm sure I'm seeing from your head that I missed the one you were going
1: for. You, you were almost there. (laughs) You were almost there. You mentioned he calls his own plays. How many times have you seen him get to the line of scrimmage? They just got out of the huddle, and then he looks at the defense and goes, "Omaha." Yep. What's what's Omaha? Guys, Omaha's I'm changing inaudible. the play. I'm yep. changing the play. Yes, his, gonna... his
0: brother Eli stole Omaha from him. i will got to give Peyton <laughs> credit for that. I'm wondering if it came from Archie.
1: I don't know. I, I, I'm surprised, you know, <laughs> I'm surprised his brother didn't say like Hoboken or something like that to a little different <laughs> from, from Manhattan, you
0: know, even though the Giants
1: play in Jersey. Yeah, it's uh, that's why I said Hoboken, right? Um, yep. But I'm like uh, – you know, Newark, Newark 28, you know, but, uh, but now it's, it's fascinating because I said, you're going to be calling Omaha a lot, but when you call Omaha and you remember why you called it, document it. Right. Well, then, and if then it
0: goes into the playbook,
1: goes into the playbook. Right? Exactly. Oh, this is what we did last time. Here's what, and we were okay. Nobody called us out on it. We can continue to do it. If somebody yep. turned around and said, we didn't like the way you did that. Okay, fine. What can we, that was a miss. What do we learn from that miss? And that's what it's all about. You're constantly learn, refining Learn things. from your mistakes. Love you learn it. Learn from your mistakes. I've, I've been, I was black and blue a couple of times. You know, I've, ha- I've had a couple of my Southwest moments. You know, yeah. it happens. Yeah.
0: You know, I, I actually had a conversation with my boss last week. I said, look, you're giving me stuff to do I've never done before. I'm going to make mistakes, but I can promise you I will not make the same mistake twice. Twice. And that is the key thing. So, all right. So one last question, and then we'll do a a quick sum up. So um, if I'm listening to the podcast and I am getting ready to start my job running and building a third-party risk management program, what are three things you would caution me, warn me about, tell me to keep my eyes open for while I'm building my program from
1: the ground up? Don't overpromise, number one. Understand what you're getting yourself into. Understand what your guardrails are um brian tracy used to say how do you eat a steak one bite at a time and one of the things you got to do is literally don't try to bite off more than you can chew which is oh yeah we can do that or we could do that or i can get a tool that can do that you might have all the tools in the world but do you have the team to be able to support it okay right. um know when to say no it's it's and and I say that because people turn to third-party risk for particularly in monitoring, right? A lot of organizations are now engaging third-party risk with the continuous monitoring aspect of it. Um, I know one organization that took that on. They were strictly assessments, took on, thir- took on continuous monitoring. And he asked me, can I give him some advice to go talk to the CISO and say, I am missing all of my service level agreement deliverables because we're smack in the middle of an assessment. We use a particular continuous monitoring tool. Now I'm reaching out to the vendor and the vendor's going, what are you talking about? We deplatformed that thing two months ago. Or where are you seeing this information? And now you're right. sitting there going, oh my gosh, what, what are we doing now? Okay. So it's understanding the guardrails and knowing when to sit there and say, no, I don't have the staff for this, or we don't have the ability. I mean, he actually took on the toll and they weren't even trained on the toll. And I even said to him, I said, you know, have you even built what you should be monitoring based on the criticality or the risk of the vendor? So if you have a monitoring tool that monitors 200 components, do you need all 200 components for a low risk or moderate vendor? Probably not. You could probably get away with 30 to 50. I'm just, you know, generalizing here. Yep. And he said, no, yep. we never went through that activity. I said, you're not putting yourself in a position to succeed. So if you're put in a position, how are you going to eat that steak? One bite at a time. I can do it this way. Are you okay with it? If you come to the conclusion that I can't do this successfully, I need resources. Whether I can bring somebody in to assist me or I can add to staff. Bringing somebody in is, you know, hiring an organization to come in and assist on that. So build, you got to be able to, to measure what you have. And that's what a lot of other organizations don't do. They don't have metrics. You need to be able to have metrics to monitor these things. How long is your turnaround time? How many assessments do you have going on? How many findings or issues or observations are you wrapping up on? Okay. Do you have your your thumb on the pulse of, you know, we have have 15 critical or high risk um, uh, items we need to close by the end of the month? Okay. How many of those are going to carry over next month? Because I guarantee you not every single vendor is able to close those up by the end of the month. So how much bleed over do you have? Now that you got to continue to monitor them. Okay. Um, so you got to be able to establish metrics. What do you want to monitor? I'm a big fan of stage gate monitoring. I just put this in my TPM t- tidbit from, uh, from last week. Um, you got to know what you're monitoring. Okay. It's going to be the lifesaver. It's because that's, what's able to help provide you with ammunition to be able to speak to the higher ups and say, I need additional tools or I need additional resources. Right. Um, Excellent.
0: So um, I want to thank my guest, Tom Garuba, and Tom actually mentioned and I, I would be remiss if I didn't say this. You need to follow Tom on LinkedIn. Tom has his great TPRM uh, tidbits where he posts these little videos. It's great stuff. You know, you don't have to sit down and listen for forty five minutes. There, a minute, whatever long. Great, great stuff. It'll give you an opportunity to uh, learn from Tom in his uh, long career. So. Couple of sort of summary. I mean, you said so many good things. I was like struggling. I filled a whole sheet of paper here with my notes. So um, first thing, uh, Tom and I both have parents that took us to inappropriate movies when we were children. Jaws and Saturday Night Fever, probably not the best, right? Um, Focus on risk. Uh, What else we got here? Um, If you are looking at the bigger third-party risk management thing, pick it apart, figure out where your biggest exposures are. I think Tom, your point about starting with the data exposure, I think is huge. And the other one that you hit on a few minutes later, which was resilience and continuity, right? Talk to your continuity people. I always tell people, if you don't have a risk assessment, I bet you have a business impact analysis. Go look at that. That will at least get you started. Um, What else? Uh, Focus on continuous improvement, right? Always get better. Don't be so rigid, That you get stuck. Don't you know? I always tell people, I'm going to tell you what I think, and then I'm going to listen to what you think, and then we can talk about it. But don't don't get so rigid that you you know put a stake in the ground to your detriment. And then one last thing, and I thought this was brilliant, and I love this, which is policy is important. Procedure is actually how you get the stuff done, and that is so so important. So Tom, again, thank you so much. I know you and I have known each other for, for a long time. This was a, a great way for me to spend part of my, uh, my afternoon. So again, I want to thank our, our guest, Tom Garuba. Um, please subscribe to the podcast. We are loving doing it. We are loving bringing it to you. Uh, we would love to have more of you join us and, and listen in. Uh, so feel free to do that via your favorite podcast carrier. So with that, I want to say everyone stay safe. Stay healthy, stay secure. me out.
1: Thank you for listening to Risk and
0: Reels, a cybersecurity podcast. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to riveting 30-minute conversation about movies and
1: cybersecurity. Jeffrey will be on the road this year at some of the industry's biggest events, but you can always find him on LinkedIn and Twitter at Jeffrey Wheatman. This podcast is powered by BlackHite, the only security rating service to deliver the highest quality intelligence to help organizations make better risk decisions.